1: Ed Flash ferrans 900 steelworkers to be laid off in West Virginia. Why? Well, we can blame the International Trade Commission. We'll explain. And today on the show, the latest from the American Legion and the Alliance for Retired Americans. Welcome to the Friday, February 16th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with a longtime contributor. That would be Jeff Stouffer. He joined the show back in 2009. So we're looking at, what, 15 years of contributions to America's workforce? Legion.org for complete updates. And this is the time of the month where we preview the next month's edition. And that would be March. And March is Women's History Month. And they've got two articles in the March edition. One is titled, For Gallantry in Action, Meet the Women Who Earned the Silver Star. Now, the Silver Star, mind you, is the nation's third highest award for valor in combat. And this story starts off with Sergeant Lee Ann Hester. And we're going back to uh, March of 2005 at the height of the war in Iraq, and at the time, The Pentagon policy forbade women from serving in units whose primary mission was to engage in direct combat. She was assigned to the National Guard's 617th Military Police, and they were protecting supply routes in and out of Baghdad. And then all of a sudden, on a Sunday morning, about three miles east of the city, Hester and her team were surrounded and fired on by dozens of insurgents. So they dropped back, and for 45 minutes, they exchanged fire at close range. And Hester, her fellow soldiers, killed 27 insurgents, wounded six more, and took one captive. And get this, every member of her unit survived. And she wasn't supposed to be in combat. So she's one of many that earn, and righteously so, the Silver Star. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the Vietnam Women's Memorial, reaching new generations 30 years after dedication. Jeff authored this story, and this is a memorial that nobody wanted. They had to put up a huge fight. And lastly, Collision Course. This is uh, authored by Ken Olson, and it has to do with space junk. Listen to this the Department of Defense has been tracking space junk for more than 60 years. Today its U.S. Space Surveillance Network compiles data on more than 27,000 objects, most larger than a softball. NASA and private aerospace companies use the information to avoid collisions. (laughs) We put up a lot of stuff in space. It's still there. Some of it falls down. In fact, they uh, call attention in the article. I remember this story back in 1979. Large chunks of Skylab. This was a 70-ton space station crashed into Australia. A lot of junk up there, and we put it up there. Well, we're not alone. I mean, China, Russia, there's a lot of countries that put stuff in space, but nobody is figuring out what to do with it. Jeff Stofer will be our first guest later in the show. We're going to go to uh, Robert Roach Jr. And I'm really, really pleased to have this individual on the show. He's the president of the Alliance for Retired Americans. And uh, he was the general secretary treasurer of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, the first African-American vice president of the IAM, and the first African-American treasurer. So we're talking about Black History Month here on America's Workforce. He's a perfect fit for this, and he's going to tell his story how he and Tommy Buffenbarger got together and really pushed diversity in the machinist union. We're talking in the late 90s here when they had a plan. And uh, Tom is going to talk about, about that later this month, but this is uh, Robert's perspective on it and how it changed the IAM and eventually other unions, including the AFL-CIO. We're also going to talk about this fiscal commission. In fact, Robert spoke at an event yesterday on Capitol Hill with Representative John Larson. And this fiscal commission, this is bad news because essentially it would give a small group of lawmakers and non-elected individuals power, a lot of power, to recommend cuts to Social Security and other popular programs without any ability for the public to weigh in. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. We're also going to talk about pensions because uh, Robert is a member of the uh, Pension Rights Center. So Robert Roach, Jr., president of the Alliance for Retired Americans, retiredamericans.org is your website he'll be our second guest on the show now brief look into the world of labor the segment brought to you by boyd watterson asset management you can find more at BoydWatterson.com. not good news for steelworkers in west virginia cleveland cliffs announced yesterday it will indefinitely idle its tin plate plant along the ohio river this april The closing means about 900 employees will either be laid off or relocated to other Cliffs plants. In a press release, Cliffs said the decision to idle the plant in Weirton, West Virginia, across the Ohio River from Steubenville, is a direct result of the U.S. International Trade Commission rejecting new tariffs on tin products from Canada, China, Germany, and South Korea. Now, tin plate is commonly used to make food cans and beverage cans. Cleveland Cliffs, along with the United Steelworkers and support from Ohio Senators Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance were pushing for anti-dumping measures on foreign tin and chromium-coated steel products. Now, dumping you should know this by listening to this show, but anyway, I'm going to explain it in economic terms as a form of predatory pricing in which a company sells products in another country at a price that's lower than what it is normally. Cliffs and others argued that other countries were dumping tin plate products in the U S creating an unfair playing field. Well, the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled on February 6 that the U.S. industry was not being harmed by imports of tin from other countries. This was despite the fact that the U.S. Department of Commerce determining that the products were being sold in the U.S. at less than fair market value. Cleveland Cliffs said approximately 900 employees will be affected by the closing. The company said workers will be given opportunities to relocate to other Cliffs facilities or they'll be given severance packages. Sad story there. Sad story there. And one more here before we break. Registered nurses at Oroville Hospital in California, Oroville, California, held an informational picket yesterday protesting chronic short staffing conditions that jeopardize patient care and lead to high turnover and the loss of experienced nurses. This was all arranged by the California Nurses Association, which is part of National Nurses United. Last year, management at the hospital closed services and reorganized departments within the hospital. This has resulted in short staffing across many units, including case management. Delays in discharging patients have a ripple effect across the hospital creating delays in patient care, that comment from C. Vang, a registered nurse in the case management unit. She went on to say, when a patient is waiting to be discharged from the hospital, that means we can't move a patient who is waiting in the emergency department for that bed to be available. Nurses say they recognize the hospital has invested in building a new tower, but they say staffing issues are critical and need to be addressed immediately. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Jeff Stofer on behalf of the American Legion. This is America's
0: Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com.
2: It takes LIUNA to build North America's infrastructure.
1: The Iron Worker's Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight Ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, we build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great iron worker, whether it's building the next intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at CWA-Union.org.
2: America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd-Waterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWaterson.com.
1: America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. A great union
0: requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more.
1: America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org.
0: Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferrans,
1: And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by Blue Cross and Blue Shield's National Labor Office. Blue Cross and Blue Shield companies formed out of a need to provide affordable health care to teachers, to loggers and miners. Well, in 1965... The Blues developed the National Labor Office to strengthen its commitment to organized labor. And today, Blue Cross and Blue Shield's National Labor Office remains focused on America's workers advocating for affordable and equitable health care, partnering with strategic alliances to provide industry-leading products and services, and proudly serving more than 18 million unionized workers, retirees, and their families. Working hard for America's Working Families, for the health of America. You can learn more by following them at Blue Labor on LinkedIn and X, formerly known as Twitter. All right, let's go to line number one. And joining us from Indianapolis today is Mr. Jeffrey Stouffer. And it's Indianapolis because that's where the American Legion is based. Legion.org for complete updates. And Jeff is here to talk about the March issue, March being Women's History Month. You're always ahead of the game. I like that, Jeff. And uh, you've got some really, really good stories here. So, welcome back to the show. Let's start off with women who have received the Silver Star. Go ahead, my brother.
3: Thanks, Flash. It's great to be with you again. I this this issue of the magazine is really special. It is. I think I, I think our most thorough. Uh, you know, sort of examination of the women who have served in our armed forces through history. And um, we're working not only in print, but also in digital media. Next month, we'll be doing a four-episode piece on women who've served in the military going back to the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, on to World War One, World War II, Vietnam, and up to, de- up to date. But anyway, the, what this feature that we have in the March issue for Women's History Month, I think is extraordinary, by Taylor Baldwin Kylan, and it's about women who have received the Silver Star, which is the nation's third highest award for valor in combat. And um, you know it is a, it's a very very uh, rare uh, medal to receive. I think it's it's bestowed on, I think, fewer than one in every two hundred and fifty who serve, but it but it's for it's for gallantry in action and in combat. And um, the author uh, begins with the story of Leanne Hester, Sergeant Leanne Hester, and I think it's it's really important to note the date that. Uh, Leanne Hester did what she did to receive the Silver Star. It was March 2005 and it was in Iraq. And um, at that time, the Pentagon, the policy was, DOD policy, forbade women from serving in units whose primary mission was to engage in direct combat. And the question you know, always has been in Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on terrorism. What isn't in direct combat? Well, anyway, her story is that they were on a Sunday morning, They were, um, they, their, their vehicle got, got hit by an IED and suddenly they were exposed to this big ambush and they were surrounded by, uh, insurgents, by enemy insurgents and the Sheener squad leader, uh, staff Sergeant Timothy Nian. They jumped out of the truck, and they ran toward the insurgents, they dropped behind a trench line, and for 45 minutes, they exchanged fire at close range with these, with these, with these enemies. And um, Hester and her, her, her little group, they were, you know, outnumbered, but they uh, basically eliminated 27 insurgent enemy uh, combatants, they wounded six more, and they took one prisoner, and every member of her unit survived. And it was quite a, quite a feat at that time for, at a time in 2005 when women were not even expected or supposed to be in combat. Her actions that day got her the Silver Star, you know, but it was, it was kind of a, you know, a thing because it was, it was basically her actions were conducted in a way that was kind of in contradiction to, DOD policy at the time. It wasn't going to be until 2013 when Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta basically began the process of opening up all combat roles to, all, to women or all, all, all military occupational specialties to women if they qualified for them. And then in 2015 it became policy. So it was 10 years after she did what she did to get the Silver Star when she was finally authorized to be in combat. So it's kind <laughs> of a... I think this is that's, that's the whole twist on the story. And, you know, you look back through history, and the author goes into um, the stories of uh, of uh, uh, nurses in in World War One, uh, Jane Rignell, Lydney Lecron, and Irene Wilbar, who were uh, they? They couldn't even give they didn't even give them a rank when they were army nurses back then. They were Miss or Nurse, and now they come out as officers, uh, second lieutenants, first lieutenants when they, when they get out of nursing school. But back then that wasn't the case. And anyway, uh, this was the story of how these women basically, uh, followed along behind the combat units, set up these aid stations and hospitals. And even though they were under attack and they took fire and people were getting killed all around them, they were, they stayed calm and worked 12, 15 hour days, saving lives, many lives. And then uh, the author goes uh, into one more, which I thought was another good one, it was the the story of what we call the Angels of, of Anzio. And for those in know World War II history know that Anzio was a terrible, bloody fight in uh, the winter of 1944, January of 1944. And um, they basically, it was an amphibious landing like Normandy, but the strip of beach was very narrow, and the Allies and the Americans were you know, basically pinned down on this little strip beach. There was no place that was in the rear per se, as as these medical units were supposed to be. But they get the, the these women, um, namely uh, Second Lieutenant Ellen Ainsworth, First Lieutenant Mary Roberts, Second Lieutenant Elaine Rowe, and Second Lieutenant Rita Rourke, they were um, they were getting you know bombed and, and attacked and in fact they, they, they later said that there was no uh, recognition by the enemy that those red crosses on the tops of their tents meant this is a field hospital they attacked anyway and they they were told that they could evacuate get to a safer location but those nurses said no we're going to stay and fight they stayed and they sir, and they took care of those soldiers for five months the Battle of Anzio was 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 very gnarly, extremely uh, deadly, lots of wounded. Um, the uh, one of them, Ainsworth, uh, she, uh, you know, she they, they, they famously they evacuated a whole bunch of their patients, saved their lives, put them on the ground and took care of them through the night. 42 lives were saved in one attack. And then a, about a week later, Ainsworth took shrapnel to her chest she had a piece that was lodged in her chest and she kept working and finally she got so drained and blood, blood was out of her. She literally, she died from those wounds six days later. She's buried, um, in Italy, uh, for in, in the the Sicily Rome American cemetery and she got her silver star posthumously. Then the other silver star, um, uh, that our that the author goes into and there are others, but was, was, uh, uh, Private First Class Monica Lynn Brown, she was a combat medic with 4th Squadron 73rd Cavalry Regiment 82nd Airborne Division and again it was 2007 when she was on a combat patrol when her convoy got hit by an IED, they all, everybody got, got injured, tons of wounded, and um, it was an enemy ambush. Brown rushed to provide aid, dodged small arms mortar fire, fire, and shielded the Union from this incoming exploding shrapnel, and um, she saved the lives of many, many soldiers that day. And when uh, Vice President Cheney pinned the Silver Star on her, um, she was actually right after she was. She got the Silver Star. She was pulled from the field a few days after the attack because women were not supposed to be allowed to participate in combat. (laughs) She'd already. I mean, this is this is this is the twist on the whole story: is all of these acts of of valor and courage through history that women have performed. Going back to the revolution, really, when women had to literally dress as men and disguise themselves in order to fight, um, and the Civil War, of course, and then as, as things went along. But by and large, they weren't allowed to fight or serve their country, but they still did, and very many of them served with great gallantry and valor and that's the that's the story of the silver Star which is an interesting medal that it's the third highest like I said in that's awarded in the military for combat uh, performance and um, it's one of that has some really great stories in it
1: and uh, there's some good history here that's uh, included in the article the estimated number of silver Star medals awarded this goes from uh, World War one it started in 1918 to today is somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000. And when you figure more than 30 million American men and women served in uniform over the past century, the Silver Star is a rare award bestowed on fewer than one in every 250 service members. It's a great article. I got to salute the author here, Taylor Baldwin Kyland. And uh, Taylor's a former Navy officer, member of American Legion Post 24 in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, Taylor's also the co-author of Unwavering, The Wives Who Fought to Ensure No Man Is Left Behind. Powerful stuff here. Thanks for sharing uh, your comments on this story. And this is included in the March edition of the American Legion magazine for gallantry in action. But there is more. We're going to talk about the Vietnam Women's Memorial and also space junk. It's all part of our segment with Jeff Stoffer of the American Legion. Later in the show, we're going to check in with Robert Roach Jr., retired from the Machinists and now with the Alliance for Retired Americans. Back in a few minutes, you're listening to America's Workforce. This is
0: America's Workforce.
2: It takes Layuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities... LIUNA members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by LIUNA at LIUNA.org. That's LIUNA.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils.
1: Are you an experienced mechanical insulator looking to take your career to the next level? Insulators Local 50 in Central Ohio has steady work for a number of years. Insulators Local 50 offers a total wage and benefits package that can't be beat. It's not just the competitive wages. Local 50 also provides medical, vision, and dental insurance with no paycheck deductions for you and your family. Don't miss out on the chance to secure your future. Join us at Insulators Local 50 earn great pay and the best benefits. Visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF50 to fill out the online form and a local 50 representative will call to begin the process. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. This
0: segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit SurveyandBallotSystems.com to learn more.
1: America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org.
0: Now... Back to Ed Flash Ferris with America's Workforce.
1: And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, oh.aft.org. Melissa Cropper will be joining us on behalf of the OFT next Tuesday, the day after Presidents' Day. All right, let's go uh, back to our live line, rejoin Jeff Stouffer on behalf of the American Legion talking about the March edition, March is Women's History Month. You got another story here, Your Legacy Lives in Us, and this is about the Vietnam Women's Memorial. Talk to me about this one, Jeff.
3: Well, uh, this year was the 30th anniversary of the dedication of the Vietnam Women's Memorial on the National Mall, and just to kind of background it a little bit, uh, it, this was this came about when combat nurse Diane Carlson Evans, who we've had such a close relationship with in the American Legion, She's a member, and she's a dear friend of, of, of us and our organization, and um, she has a uh, she literally, she was at the at the when the when the when the when the wall was dedicated, in eighty two. She began the process of thinking there ought to be something specific for the women who served in Vietnam, which there was ten thousand who served in in Vietnam, and about two hundred and sixty five thousand who served women who served during the war, during the Vietnam War at various duty stations and different MOSs. Anyway, um, the battle to get that women's memorial on to the national mall it took 10 years there was so much uh, opposition and criticism and you know absolute ridicule and and about women why would women Deserve a place on the National Mall among these uh, among these statues and memorials. And it's a very, you know, it's a National Park Service memorial that is in a highly coveted spot, and it takes you can't imagine the number of hoops they have to jump through to get a memorial placed on the National Mall. But Diane began the the ten year process, and you know had. Um, stout uh, support from the American Legion. Every step of the way, we had a resolution that began in her local post, went up to the district, went on to the department, up to the National Convention of our of the American Legion's position of support for there should be a women's memorial on the National Mall because of all the lives those nurses, combat nurses in Vietnam saved. Um, it's, you know, immense. She often says that that wall would be about six feet taller if it weren't for these nurses who served in Vietnam. Um, anyway, 30 years later, um, after all the controversy that went into this thing, and it was a big issue. It was on, on national uh, uh, broadcast television, the the, ba- the battle to get women recognized on the mall. She put it this way. She she was the guest speaker at the at the at Veterans Day at the at the National Mall at the right in front of the the, the big wall uh, this year on November 11th and she she quoted I love this quote she said Mahatma Gandhi said first they ignore you they did then they laugh at you they did then they fight you they did then you win that's our 10 year story we won. They did. They spent 10 years fighting to get this in there. And now what I know, what I, we would, ceremonies were the Friday and the Saturday um, around Veterans Day weekend. And there were so many active duty and young women, uh, military personnel and veterans, women veterans who were, who weren't even born when this thing was dedicated let alone during the Vietnam War who said that that memorial has been an inspiration to them and it told them that they could serve whatever whatever role the, the military would want them to serve in and um, you know Diane said that she thought that this 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 memorial had a had a, had a bigger meaning too and it it sort of triggered uh, you know an evolution in the way we treat way we look at women in military service and getting gender-specific treatment at VA medical uh, facilities and getting um, uh, proper uh, treatment and examination and understanding research into PTSD among women. Just a variety of things that are gender-centered that literally came about after this memorial was installed, so it was kind of a you know so it's not just a statue in a park for the birds to land on, it is a symbol of what women in the military mean to the United States and what they have always meant to the United States, and so uh, it's a it's a great uh, a great uh, moment that that we in the American Legion I think are very proud of, and that's that we had a big hand in supporting that memorial going up there on the National Mall. And here we are 30 years after its dedication and all the controversies, and the critics and the opponents, they've faded away. And that memorial's still standing and inspiring new generations.
1: It's amazing what you have to go through to do the right thing. And this is definitely the right thing. There's a really good picture where this article is in the American Legion magazine. And you, you reference Veterans Day, last Veterans Day, 2023. And there's a photo of Diane placing flowers at the memorial. And there's a quote from the sculptor, Glenna Goodacre. Glenna said that my hands can shape the clay which might touch the hearts and heal the wounds of those who served. Fills me with humility and deep satisfaction. I can only hope that future generations who view the sculpture will stand in tribute to these women who served during the Vietnam era. Powerful stuff, powerful stuff. All right, one more here. Collision course. We're switching gears here. This is by Ken Olson, another one of my favorite writers. And uh, this involves too much junk in space. All right. Jeff, it's all yours. What's going on here? I'm Um, I'm getting kind of worried. Houston, we've got a problem. Yes, big time.
3: (laughs) It is... It it's a mess above our above our atmosphere, you know the, the and I think that this is getting to be kind of an issue more and more, and we hear about it more and more. I think I saw a piece even on sixty minutes not too long ago about, huh, that seems to be that we've got all of this, all of these objects floating around in space, and the thing about it is, is eventually at some times they come down to Earth and they land. I mean, they, the the uh, Ken mentions the fact that. Um, in what was it in 2020? All of a sudden, you're this 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 village in in Ivory Coast. A 39 foot metal pipe smashed into a home. Well, where what was it? Well, it was part of an 18 ton Chinese space rocket that entered that reentered the atmosphere and scattered debris all over the west all over West Africa. Um, you know, no one was hurt in that, but it's probably not going to be too long before someone does get hurt when little things even if they're the size of a quarter it's still quote this the the, one of the one of the sources in his story says it's still big enough to hurt you when it hits you at 17,000 miles per hour oh yeah yeah this is uh uh the the thing about it is that i that that was brought up some of these metrics uh, that there are right now um the u.s space surveillance network is compiling data on more than 27,000 objects uh, that are floating around in our in our atmosphere or above our atmosphere, most of which are larger than a softball. And the uh, Department of Defense has been tracking it for about 60 years, and everybody knows it's a problem, and it's an increasing problem because we keep sending more things into space, but we don't go up and clean up the ones that are no longer in use, and there are the, uh, Ken brings up that there are 3,300 or so dead satellites up there that are just floating around like corpses and they are uh, at, not only are they just kind of are they harmless, well maybe if they don't get hit by some other thing that has also got debris you know like a you know something the size of a penny, it's a, hits a, hits a thing like that it can have an effect, it can scatter more parts and little parts and stuff like that and the problem is every nation that has anything to do with space knows this is a problem, knows it's a problem for our planet, and yet no one is really doing much about it or knows what to do about it. You know, they've got some research uh, activities going on it, but, um, you know, the big the point that Ken brings up is to clean up all of these, you know, 20 million pounds of space junk, all, all above our our, our earth, it's going to cost a lot of money. And the question is, is who's going to pay for that? Is it the commercial enterprises that put up the satellites that we enjoy for all of our amenities like GPS and satellite television and satellite, you know, phone signals and, you know, but again, we talk about that you know, if we've got space junk and things get are start and it becomes a big problem and you cannot, and it becomes a, such a dysfunctional problem that those services are bogged down. You know, I think back to where we were when the microchips came short, you know, we lose our satellites. Satellites are much like, like microchips today. We've got a, we got a problem. We can't, you know, we kind of need to clean up our mess in space, if we're going to continue to use space as a, as a, as our, our, as our communications network and our, and, you know, all of, all of the things that we're using satellites and space, you know, uh, technology to, you know, help us in our, in our lives, and our economy and in our national defense. And, you know, it, I I mentioned earlier before the show that I think it's kind of uh, interesting to think about the, idea that Russia is, 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 considering and putting a nuclear weapon into space. And, yeah. you know, what we're doing in space, if what, if we start having space activity that is more than just satellite signals back and forth to earth, I think that the problem of a big mess up there grows exponentially worse. And, and a lot of people are watching this pretty closely, but again, very little has been done.
1: Yeah, and the timing is incredible. You mentioned uh, the the story about the Russians putting nukes in space. They're saying that's to knock down other satellites, which is going to create more junk if that's the case. But, you right. know, there, there's many, Jeff, you know there's many that are of the opinion we ruined the planet, we as human beings. Now it appears we're ruining the whole universe. <laughs> Gosh, but, it's crazy.
3: Yeah, and it, it is, and it is, and I mean, it's, it's so so. I don't know. To, to do this without without a plan, or you know, and we have heard um, some of our site visits with U.S. Space Force have, have have discussed this issue. I think U.S. Space Force is working on it to some degree, and so is uh, the Air Force. But there, but again, um, the question becomes, uh, you know, who's funding space junk cleanup? And it's not all U.S satellites obviously china has a big stake up there there's sure, a lot of sure. other a lot of other countries that have you know commercial and government you know satellite systems and 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 a lot of things floating around above our atmosphere that are contributing to this problem and that's that's the question is and, and there are even you know even china has done some has made some kind of a commitment to 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 begin to work on this and to begin the process. I think it, it's going to take it's going to take a brand of multinational unity that I think may be pretty hard to achieve in today's environment.
1: A lot of stuff up there. 27, thousand objects floating in space as we speak. All right, my friend, great job today. Always a pleasure having you on, Jeff Stofer of the American Legion Magazine, legion.org for complete updates. You take care. We'll talk to you next month, okay? All right, Flash. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Robert Roach is the president of the Alliance for Retired Americans. He's also the first African-American vice president of the Machinists Union and the first African-American treasurer. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about pensions. We'll talk about Social Security. All that coming up next right here on the show.
0: You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens.
2: It takes LIUNA to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, Delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L I U N A.org. The Alliance for
1: American Manufacturing is a non-profit, non-partisan partnership formed back in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers. Their mission is simple, strengthen American manufacturing and create new private sector jobs through smart public policies. Key word there is smart. We need to be smarter than ever in today's highly competitive world. The Alliance for American Manufacturing believes that an innovative and growing manufacturing base is vital. Vital to America's economic and national security, as well as providing good jobs for future generations. Good jobs today, good jobs tomorrow. Good American jobs. Find out more at AmericanManufacturing.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and and sign-and-display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash L M C T. There is unity and strength for workers.
0: We are the USW. we are the
1: U S W the United,
0: United steel Steelworkers,
1: workers. the largest industrial union
0: in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U S Canada, Canada and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers standing strong, and fighting
1: for what's right. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org.
0: Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash
1: Farens And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, UL Agency. Dot .org let's go to line number 2 welcome a newcomer to the show robert roach junior is his name robert is the president of the alliance for retired americans retiredamericans.org is a website we do a segment with them each and every month he retired as the general secretary treasurer of the international association of machinists and aerospace workers that was in july of 2015 and he started his career in the IAM as a ramp serviceman for TWA. Boy, there's an airline I remember. (laughs) (laughs) 1975. I'm going to throw Pan Am in there. Do you remember Pan Am as well,
4: Robert? Yes, they were right across the ramp from
1: us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going back into time here. Thank you so much for joining us, and I know you're a good friend of my good friend, Tom Buffenbarger, and Tommy told me that... uh, you were his first general secretary treasurer, the first African-American vice president of the Machinist Union, and the first African-American treasurer. So it's only appropriate that we talk to you on Black History Month because we're trying to get as many voices to talk to various leaders like yourself and talk about the struggle, how you got from point A to point B. And, and, and you know, this being a union show, you know, Robert, the union helped a lot. It helped a lot. Talk to me a little bit about that time. And, and I know you want to talk about the diversity because, you know, until Tom and you got together, you know, he, he told me, he said it was a bunch of white guys. Things change with your, with your leadership. Can, you, can, we, uh, can we address that on the show real quick?
4: Yes. Well, when uh, I came on um, to the council, the executive council, yes, it was all white males. And Tom Buffenbarger had been, um, during his career and as he elevated the union, that the union should be reflective of the membership. That when you look out in the audience, you should see the union members, and not just a select group of people. And what we put together, you know, put together um, the council at that time, was not just to say, okay, we want to get certain people, certain colors, certain this or that. We started an educational program and um, that educational program started at Grassroots. We gave everybody ability to attend uh, classes um, through their locals, and that was no cost to the individual, and to learn and to develop union knowledge and just knowledge in general about the union movement. And that program, um, and we des- designed a way that everybody would have an opportunity to come through, because it, originally only certain people could get through because a lot of people didn't come to union meetings. But that program was successful. And then in 1997, and I wasn't the vice president but we had a discussion with Tom Muffinbarger and Donnie Wharton, um, the, the, the international representatives that worked for them, um, because I had been to college. And, you know, I paid my way to go to college uh, on my own. at the motivation of my parents. And, and in fact, that program... Allowed people once they achieved a certain level would be uh, we could go to college get college degrees and the union would pay if it was in accordance with something they were doing for the union mm-hmm. that expanded that expanded the horizon of 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 people that we could get because our goal was not to just pick people because of what they look like our goal was to educate people educate all the people. And then everybody would have an equal opportunity to the various positions within the union. And it worked. And um, the, the council, after a few years of that, the council became very diverse. We had everybody you could think of on the council. And um, it, and they were, in fact, and let me say this very clearly, they were the best and the brightest that the labor movement had to offer. These weren't just mm-hmm. people that got put in the positions. These were people who were good people because we went through some tough times uh, during that period, and if we didn't have the best people in position, we would have failed. And so through that, through all of that work, and it's not, I'm saying it very quickly, but through all of that work and the educational process, and I would say everybody on that council was committed to process to educate people. And we got a lot of people that uh, became educated, and a lot of people – but now in higher positions today at the machine Union, like my successor um, uh, at the General Secretary Treasurer, is, okay? And mm-hmm. so we had lots of people that came, wanted to be involved, got involved, got the a fair opportunity, and we have a, 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 a mirage of people. Uh, you know, we just have everybody, and it, and it worked.
1: And, Robert, what's great about this, what happened at the IAM spread to other unions and eventually to the AFL-CIO, and you look at today, you got Fred Redmond, Secretary Treasurer, African-American, and Liz Schuler, the first female to lead the AFL-CIO. That's what we want. We want to look like the members, and that's exactly what's right. happening. So congratulations on what you were able to accomplish with Tom so many years ago. That was a game-changer. That was a game-changer and much-needed. I might add. All right, let's switch gears here if you don't mind. I want to talk about uh, your role at the alliance and uh, we uh, we appreciate everything you you do over there. A lot of people on social security they're scratching their heads or wondering, "Gee, you know, I hope this continues here because we're hearing some word out of Washington about this fiscal commission and I know that yes. you spoke at it recently. Why don't you explain what's at play right here, Robert?
4: Well, what's at play is is that uh, a certain group of uh, congressmen want to get together a small group of congressmen they to get together and uh, to fashion a proposal um, on Social Security and then bring it to the floor and then it's to be an up-and-down vote. And you won't even really get a chance. To, you don't get a chance to debate it. It's not public. It's not transparent. And we believe that by doing this, they intend to cut benefits of Social Security and Medicare. And um, this is just not acceptable. It is uh, something they talk about it, they talk about fixing it, and it and just waste time. Um, anybody that votes against uh, the senior citizens of this country is going to not be in office too long. But they, they want to do this in private rather than have a public debate, have people come and testify. It'll be a little closed group, and nobody will know what they're talking about, and then it hits the floor. And then the um, floor Congress for a vote. And our concern is, is at a certain points, like we're coming up on March 1st, which is, uh, you know, the, the fiscal, we always want to this fiscal crisis and that it might get stuck into a deal backdoor and, mm-hmm. and we're trying to avoid that. And so, yes, we had a, um, we did have a uh, conference, a news conference yesterday with Congressman Larson, who's in out of Connecticut, who's a champion on this issue, on all social security issues, <coughs> excuse me, and, um, we want to send the message. We're telling all our members, 4.4 million members and others, to contact their congressmen and senators, and and say, "Hey, no secret commission." And the contract and the contract contact their uh, local officials and state officials because if they cut Social Security and Medicare, that only puts more of a burden on the family one, on the families, and on the cities and states that got to take care of these people. So we're right. sending that message. So,
1: so with this debt crisis, as they call it, what they want to do is balance it on the back of seniors. Isn't that Absolutely. kind of what we're seeing here? Is that right?
4: That's right. Yes. Yes. Absolutely.
1: Amazing. And, and that's,
4: that's, un- that's unacceptable on any level.
1: We should point out that the Alliance for Retired Americans is an activist organization. Those of you listening, you got to get on board with this. Go to uh, retiredamericans.org. We cannot let this happen. We cannot let this happen. Also, you can follow them on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, active retirees. Keyword is active. Uh, one more here, pensions. And I know, uh, boy, this goes back to you got a history here. You, uh, you were involved in the bankruptcy proceedings for a number of airlines when the machinist union was able to protect defined benefit plans. And remember all the airlines going bankrupt one after another. And I see that you're also a board member of the pension rights center. How how are we, how are we looking here with, with the pensions in America right now? Thankfully we had the, the rescue plan, which saved a lot of the plans, but in your opinion, I mean, you, I know you got a good pension plan with the machinist union. So let's start right there.
4: Well, my, my my pension plan with TWA don't look too good. Um, very small, and, and lots of my friends uh, don't have the blessing of another pension plan. And uh-huh. so when I, I go back to pensions since Carl Icahn bankruptcy. Um, but what what the, the legislation was fantastic. It saved not only the multi-employers different types of plans, the multi-employer plans. If that segment, which is majority Teamsters, if that pension plan was allowed to go under. That would affect affected the entire pension landscape because everybody would follow it. If you follow from IBM, i say this quickly, when IBM started this decades ago, um, and it just snowballed, snowballed, and companies going to bankruptcy. But thanks to that legislation, there's a signal that's been sent, you know, hands-off pension. The problem is, is that we don't have a lot of uh, companies um, going into pension plans, and we don't have... Um, a lot of union members, the percentage of union members, keep fighting for this because the 401k is not going to sustain you, and we're looking at a future of poverty, and um, you know for the American workers, and mm-hmm. so we're trying to continue that fight, continue to fight for pensions, to organize people, join a union, get a pension plan, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, but that fight is ongoing. It's been going for decades because they're always trying to find a way. Now we were able to at the Machinist Union. Um, protected, but no other airline group other than the machinists, pensions were protected. They all got terminated and in the bankruptcy court. But we we found a way to having the United National Pension Fund that we could move these people, instead of 401K, into a defined benefit pension plan with a lot of help from a lot of people, a lot of politicians, a lot of <clears throat> professionals. Everybody wanted to get on board because this would have been devastating devastating to, uh, 50,000 of our members and, um, and their families and what we, we were able to get it done, but it's an ongoing fight and we do a pension symposium once a year to update people with government, with, uh, professionals and, and members and leaders to keep them aware and focused on the fact that if we want pensions, we've got to continually be in that fight. You got it. Robert
1: Roach, Jr., president of the Alliance for Retired Americans, also retired from the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. It was a pleasure and an honor talking to you, sir. You take care, and I'll leave you with these words. Keep up the fight, brother, okay?
4: Thank you, and we will.
1: All right, that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, President's Day, we hear from the presidents of two unions, the American Federation of Government Employees, and the iron workers. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend.
0: That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find
2: out more information online at labortools.com.